Our first movie tells the story of a friendship behind prison walls that spans more than 20 years. Welcome to episode 7 of Middle Brown Madness, an exercise in podcast hubris. My name is Derek Gane. I'm Michelle Arf. And uh, here we are once again with four fresh contenders to see which one, which ones rather, will move on into the next round of this gargantuan, unwieldy tournament of films that we've set up for us with the IMDb Top 250 uh, plus six ringers uh, as the uh, participants. Yeah, our dadliest bunch yet. This... <laughs> I was going to say one of our better bunches, so I may be tipping my hand just a little bit. I think I think even you will disagree with that once we get into it, but, but we, we'll get there. Here's the basic gimmick of the podcast, if this happens to be the first episode uh, that you're listening to. Uh, what Michelle and I have done is we've taken the aforementioned uh, IMDb Top 250, placed it in a very large, very unwieldy, uh, very time-consuming bracket, which will take us approximately four years to get through. And uh, we pit them off head to head. Pit them off? Is that a thing? Pit that's them English? Sure. That'll, it'll work. People know what you're talking I, about. I, I could speak English good. Um, it's not like it's my second language or anything. Um, it's not. It's, it's, it's a whole story. Let's not, we're not going to get into my biography. Okay. The point is uh, 250 movies of the IMDb Top 250 plus three ringers each. So a total of six movies that me and Michelle have chosen uh, to round out the bracket to make it nice and even like. Which we get to the first um, one of those next episode. That's true. And we also have uh, four vetoes each in this first round. Michelle has already used one yes, to get I... three idiots into round two. Uh, speaking of, uh, if you are not following our Twitter, you should do that. Uh, I'm going to start <laughs> posting a little more often on there. And also we have a we have a fun new header. We do have a fun new header. Uh, I believe my exact words in the Slack uh, to Michelle when I first saw it were, um, ha ha, holy shit. And I think those uh, still stand, they still ring true. A couple of days later. We're just so, making the podcast about the movies that matter. So it's important yeah, exactly. to highlight these movies of importance. Capital M movies. Yeah, these are um, the movies that uh, you will have that there's received knowledge on. The uh, assumed masterpieces, if you will. And we take a look at that and see what's up if they hold up to scrutiny. So we've got a few here. And a spoiler alert, one of these doesn't. Yeah, I, th- I think just reading the list of films will tell people. But let's uh, let's do that first. So we've got two matchups today. Uh, we've got uh, Once Upon a Time in America, the 70 seed, versus the 127 seed in the name of the father. And our second matchup is the 59th seed, Pats of Glory, against the 195 seed, The Passion of Joan of Arc. Some interesting seeds here that I wouldn't have really expected. Like, Passion of Joan of Arc being that low is surprising to me. And again, not to tip our hand a bit further, but in the name of the father being on this list at all... And above is, The Passion of Joan of Arc. So according to IMDb, In the Name of the Father is a better film than perhaps the best silent film of all time. Not to spoiler alert too many <laughs> too many times before we actually get into discussions, but... We've been throwing around the best silent film title belt around a bunch in the last couple of episodes. There's a lot of them, to be fair. There's a good chunk of them, but all of them have like a good claim to that to that title. 
thankfully we don't have to to pull our teeth and trying to figure that one out. <laughs> That'll be the next time we do this. Once we finish uh, IMDb, we'll go through someone that probably has the greatest sound films out there list we can take and shove into here. Oh, undoubtedly. So if uh, if you'll indulge me, uh, I'm going to read. Uh, I'm going to do a little tale of the tape for our first matchup. Okay. So Once Upon a Time in America, released in 1984, directed by Sergio Leone, based on The Hoods by Harry Gray, starring Robert De Niro, James Woods, and Elizabeth McGovern, uh, zero for two at the Golden Globes last year. This didn't get a whole lot of uh, of awards play, as it were. Wait, but last, it you said last year. La- did I say last year? You did. I don't think that uh, in the name of the father. No. Sorry. We're, I'm just fucking is- up everything. Wow. This is not this is not 1985. This is in fact 2018. Although by the time this comes out it will be 2019. So happy new year everybody. Happy new What how does um oh I was thinking of Frosty the Snowman when he says happy birthday. <laughs> exactly. So yes, so yeah, the 1985 globes or or whenever the hell those happen. Uh 2 for 5 at the BAFTAs though. Uh but if I recall correctly those are technical uh, categories that it won and this was a flop. It was it was Sergio Leone's swan song, and it belly flopped. Uh, $30 million to make and made back five. Jesus. That's it's not a good success story, especially um, the original version, we should say. There's two different versions. We both mm-hmm. watched the good one. Yes, the, we watched the big-ass four-hour one. Most most movies with multiple versions, there's some debate over which one is like the preferred one. This movie, I've never heard anyone say that the shorter version is good. It sounds yeah, incoherent. The- when I read... Um, Roger Ebert's review of the film. He discussed some mm-hmm. of the changes they made, and they just sound absolutely absurd. Yeah, we watched what is basically um, uh, basically the con cut, right? Just the long ass version. Yeah, the basically four hour version. Yes. Um, Whereas again, the the edited cut that was released in America originally is like what two hours, if that. It's two hours and nineteen minutes. Yeah, so, so half the a lot movie is gone. That. I can't imagine how that would play. And it's also put with, into chronological order, which is... Ugh, I don't know about that. Against, uh, In the Name of the Father, uh, released in 1993, directed by Jim Sheridan, based on Proved Innocent by Jerry Conlon, uh, starring Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, Pete Postlewaite, and Emma Thompson. Uh, this was uh, an actual hit. This was uh, $66 million on a $13 million budget and was nominated for seven Oscars and lost every one of them. Um, that's fair, uh, but it did win the Berlin Golden Bear, which is not nothing. That is not nothing. That's also too much. Uh, <laughs> shall we get right into uh, in the name of the Father? Sure. My... Yeah. Well, let's start with um one of my bigger surprises of this tournament so far. Uh, sure. Once upon a time in America. So I good told... ass fucking movie. <laughs> it's a good ass fucking movie, and I'm shocked that I'm saying that. Um, I told Derek last night that there's a couple things in this that are that are it has going against it, and I was not expecting to like it. So. It's a a huge part of the movie is just focused on kids. I hate kids in movies. It's incredibly long. Um, at, and if I if I knew if I wasn't gonna like it, I'd just be sitting through four hours of not liking something, which is a lot worse than ninety minutes of not liking something. Or if we refer back to our Cinema Paradiso episode, three God, hours of fuck not liking yeah. something. Um, and it's also about the mob, which I just don't give a shit about generally. Uh, sure. We'll talk a little more about that, I think, once we get to The Godfather, kind of the er mob movie in many ways. Sure, sure. But um, And also not a fan of Sergio Leone, if I remember correctly? No, I'm not a fan of Spaghetti Westerns in general. I, d- I think that, like, uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is fine, but also, like, way too long. 
I think I'm going to I'm going to completely surprise and blow everyone's minds by saying that I think Good to Bad and the Ugly is a fucking masterpiece. I think most people <laughs> would, to be fair. I think that I'm in the minority on this opinion. Also, I just really like uh, I I do like spaghetti westerns, but specifically uh, specifically I like Leone's kind of style. But we'll get to that. Yeah. Um. So. Color me surprised when this movie pulled me in and then never really let go. All four hours of it, I couldn't think of a single scene that I didn't want to that I wanted to take out. There wasn't a single scene that I didn't want in there, which is a feat at this length. It is a feat. It is pro- also it is probably z- the zippiest four hours I've ever experienced. Yeah, I like uh, at some point I had to pause it to go get up and do something real quick, and I was already two hours in, and I did not realize that. I thought I was like 90 minutes into it or like uh, just over an hour. Ah, oh, man. It bums me out that this movie was was like basically uh, cut up in the editing room and a flop and was basically not considered for like 20 years because this is a magnificent looking movie. The performances are very good. Uh, I think Sergio Leone has a... I think he has one of the more expressive uses of uh, close-ups. Certainly. Like... Like we'll we'll talk a little bit later about uh, expressive close-ups, but I think that Sergio Leone is no slouch in this regard, um, and just these magnificent tableaus of like early twentieth century New York, and also just stellar editing throughout. The fact that very good editing. it's it remains coherent. There's no mm-hmm. problems with understanding, even though you're constantly flipping between time frames, between a huge mess of different characters. So you have to keep track of all their motivations of what period of time you're in, what the like order of events are. And it never gets confusing, which is excellent. Um, there's a scene early on that I think kind of made, clued me on the fact that I might be into this movie. Uh, the inciting kind of incident that brings us into everything is we see Robert De Niro strung out in an opium den. And you just hear on the soundtrack of the film a ringing phone. You have no idea where it's coming from. And you kind of go into either his memory or a flashback or something like that. And the phone keeps ringing. And what It I ex- rings for like what feels like 10 minutes. It's, yeah. <laughs> and what I expected was, oh, we go into the flashback and we see where the phone is. And then we pick it up and there we go from there. That's how movies work usually. Instead, we see him... Outside, and we see his looks like people he knows are dead on the ground. And we see him go into a speakeasy, it almost looks like, or a club of some kind, and wander around there for a bit. We see him pick up a phone, but then that's not the phone that's ringing. Instead, because we, the phone keeps ringing, the phone keeps ringing, and we cut to a different phone that is then picked up. And that takes a good like five minutes to get through the entire sequence. And the restraint that it shows, and the way that it pulls this really complicated sense of history and complicated sense of cause and effect and what it's like to be haunted by your past into just what should be a bog standard like match cut basically it clued me in on maybe what the film was trying to do and it was uh it goes from there and it never it never really stops going yeah it's 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 a feat of like it's it's a feat of movie making i mean it sounds kind of cliche to say it like that but it's like this was sergio leone's last movie and he put everything into it. He sunk not just in terms of resources, like he went for broke stylistically as well. And succeeded in it, which is And succeeded. It's already difficult enough to do what he's trying to do decently. The fact that there wasn't a single... Well, there's two things that I had an issue with, which we'll get to in a moment, I'm sure, but those two things are relatively minor, and the fact that besides that I couldn't find fault with anything that was happening in the movie. Um, I think that a lot of times it can be really easy to take things for granted in movies. 
like proper editing, proper, uh, proper like use of space, proper like storytelling techniques, but you don't actually see them all that often, like executed perfectly. Uh, like I remember, I think it was when I saw Captain America two that it kind of struck me like, wow, that movie was like edited properly and things paid off and there was set up and payoff that actually made sense. And it made me realize how often I watch movies that just don't have that. Sure. And it's not that every movie needs to have those things, certainly. I'm a huge fan of non-narrative film uh, and film that doesn't tell a story at all and kind of messes with those rules. But to see it executed so expertly is kind of – it's still magical every single time. But it's easy to forget. It's it's easy to forget magic. Yeah, the the idea with, with, with editing and, you know, just blocking mise-en-scene, it's like you only really notice whenever something – when there's a snag. Like when something – when there's friction in your interpretation of it, whenever you receive it on a screen, that's when you notice the bad stuff. If it's good, you don't see it unless you are looking for it. Or unless it's just exceptional, which I think this... Or it's or it's just exceptional. If you, like, yeah, I, yeah, there's two times you notice it. When it's really, really bad, and when it's, like, phenomenal. Uh, and one thing I do have to say is also phenomenal in this film is acting. The acting throughout, including the kids... Uh, yeah, the kids are actually pretty good. I've harped on some bad kid acting before in this uh, in this podcast, but sure. I liked everyone who was in this movie early on. Uh, shocked myself in that the fact that I cared about what's happening to these kids, their like story of growing up. Although, uh, should I get into the couple things I didn't like about the movie? Because I feel like that's a pretty good segue there. Sure. So Go the ahead. one there's one minor problem I have, which. Um, Noodles, we haven't even said the main character's name. The main character's name Noodles, played by Robert De Niro, or his nickname it's is Noodles. One, one David Noodles Aronson. Yeah. Um, and he, uh, towards the middle of the movie, he rapes the main character. And, yeah. Uh, or not towards the middle, towards the, it was the last third, because there's an intermission immediately after that, and it was a weird placement of the intermission. But, um, <laughs> so after that, that scene itself is actually very well done and is properly disturbing and haunting. It sucks. It sucks. And then... <laughs> The next scene, that character that was assaulted gets on a train and we see Noodles looking at the train and like kind of watching after it. But there's this romantic swelling music that just doesn't match at all. And I don't think it's... What the fuck are you doing? I don't think it's any that Leone intended romanticism there. It doesn't... Especially like given how that plotline resolves later in the film. Uh, Yeah, the way that plays out, that kind of sting plays is like more... I don't know. This is not a movie that trades in irony, but it's like uh, more of a counterpoint. Yeah. Um. So that felt a little off to me. That's a more just a music choice thing than anything else. But the bigger sure. issue I had with it, and um, that I discussed with Derek, is as far as I know, Robert De Niro ain't Jewish, and the main yeah. characters in this are all part of the Jewish mafia. And obviously, uh, I'm not a mafia historian, so don't quote me on anything I say here. But uh, the Jewish and Italian uh, mobs were pretty intertwined for a large portion of the 20th century, but at the same time, there's, I feel, a missed opportunity by using these characters' Jewishness as a backdrop instead of a theme, uh, because there's some wonderfully evoked scenes of, like, 1920s, like, uh, the Jewish area of New York, and that I think work really well, but it never feels like more than window dressing, because the rest of the film really falls away from that. By the time that they get out of their childhood and into their adult life, that basically goes away. And uh, having a Gentile actor play um, a Jewish mobster and also not include his Jewishness basically anywhere in the film uh, in terms of thematic resonance feels to me like a missed thread that could have made this movie that much better. 
Uh, my half-assed internet research in this respect said that um, I found out that Richard Dreyfus was considered for the, the role of Noodles, and uh, that would make it more thematically appropriate. And uh, does it affect the quality of the movie in the sense that is Richard Dreyfus a better actor than Robert De Niro, or, the, or does that even matter at all? I mean, they're very different actors is the issue. Yes, it's a different it's a different mood. Yes, it becomes a very different movie. I I don't have that movie, so I can't say whether it'd be better or worse or anything like that. Sure. Um, but I think that that's the thing keeping this movie from a five star for me. And right now it's at okay. a four and a half star. Like I sure. really enjoyed it. I'm actually looking forward to watching it again when we wrap back around in six years. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> that's the one thing that kind of just really stuck with me. The whole movie that I was like, mm, there's something a little bit off. Um, is there anything else you want to get into for what's it called? Um, I, I keep wanting once to say in the name of the father, but once upon a time, yes. Yeah. Once upon a time in America. Um, yes. Um, I mean, I, I just think this movie fucking rules. Um, uh, I, I always, I always fear, uh, this is a bit of a meta commentary. I always fear that when I talk about a movie I like, I cl- come off as sounding like a blithering idiot because all I can imagine is like, oh, this fucks. But <laughs> like, I think this is as far as a swan song goes, it's amazing uh all parties involved they're operating at like a 10 uh we'll get to it when we talk about raging bull but i think this is a far better performance by de niro this is one of his best performances ever i will agree but we'll get to raging bull when we talk about raging bull but now we've got to talk about in the name of the father though do we have to though (laughs) i mean it's a nothing we sort of have to yeah it's it's a nothing movie it's pretty paint by numbers. It's, I was kind of astonished as to how by the books it was. It's not bad. I don't want to say it's like a bad film, but it's like, it's so straightforward. It's exactly the kind of movie you would envision from hearing the plot description, which for those who don't know, we should just say, um, which we never said a plot description for Once Upon a Time in America, but I'm sure it'll have a second chance to get there. So In the Name of the Father is about a uh, young Irishman um, uh, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, who... He leaves. Um, he leaves Ireland. Or I think he like lives in Belfast originally. Correct. Yes, Belfast, North Ireland. Yes, he leaves Belfast to go to uh, the to London, the jolly old London town. And while he's there, he has some adventures. And when he comes back, he's being accused of a bombing that took place um, in a pub, I believe, or a pub or a restaurant, something like that. And the rest of the so yeah, this is happening during the troubles. It is so. yes, uh, we should say yes very clearly. Um, and the rest of the movie is him in prison along with his father trying to overturn his conviction. That's really all that happens in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. There's not a ton of imagination or flair or... Not even really a great performance by, um, Daniel Day-Lewis, I'll be honest. I think he's good, but I think it's by far his most actorly performance that I've seen. I think it's one of his performances where one of his few that... When I look at, I don't think, wow, or like it's, it doesn't have that kind of, not just the outsized character that he often plays in many of his roles, but doesn't have that certain sense of, oh, this is one of the greats that I'm watching. Oh, this is something unique and special. It felt like anyone really could have filled in for him. I mean, I mean, DDL comes to the table with a very specific kind of energy. And I mean, that is part why the movie is even in the ballpark of okay. But yeah, I feel like this is something someone else could have done. Um, Peter Postlewaite, who plays uh, Jerry Conlon's father, he's significantly uh, better. He's better, in my opinion. Uh, I also, okay. I also like Pete Postlewaite quite a bit, to be honest. Sure. Um, everyone's um, favorite uh, actor in Dragonheart, obviously. Sure. 
Um, a movie I have not seen. Oh, you would love Dragonheart. It is so fucking dumb. It is. <laughs> it's. I mean, Sean Connery voices a dragon. Yes, it, is, it is I who loves dumb movies. That's me. Hey, it's okay. It's. it's I mean, it's it's fair, Highlander dumb. dumb it's Highlander dumb. I can get behind Highlander. It's got you got your Dennis Quaid's. You got your David Thewlis's. I like those guys. Um, Emma Thompson thoroughly wasted in this movie. Yeah, she didn't really do much at all. She's she's got like one solo at the end where she's just yelling at a judge, which is it's the worst. It's not the worst. Okay, I'm I'm exaggerating, but it's like <laughs> it's it's such it's, a it's it's such a medium courtroom scene. It's 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 but it's it's, it's it's by the books. It's paid by numbers. I weirdly the thing it reminded me of, uh, maybe just because I was mentioning this movie in the chat, was the uh, scene before Congress in the Majestic. Which I don't know if you've seen okay. that film. Um, <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a weird pull. I have not seen that. Um, where Jim Carrey is testifying for the House on American Activities Committee. It's a movie. It's there's a lot of stuff happens to it. I thought that movie was. I thought that was about a movie theater. It it is also. It's look. You hmm. got to watch the Majestic to really understand the Majestic. It's one of those movies. But um, not to be okay. That's, all right. I actually think it's a lot better than most people do. To be fair, okay. but um, there's a final scene where he is testifying in front of there, and he does his big speech about what America means and what America is about, and how this is un-American to to question people like this and to act the way that they're acting. And I feel like Emma Thompson is doing a similar thing, which is like, how dare the police and how dare all of how these institutions you, fail this one man and his friends as well. And she's not wrong. And nah. I'm certainly um, on the side of the characters I'm supposed to be on the side of. Yeah, sympathetic to the plight of the unjustly jailed. Correct. But it doesn't do much more than that. It's it's serviceable, which is maybe damning with the faintest praise I could. It's... <sighs> like, if you're going to watch a movie that has that's about the Troubles, there's so many other great ones you can watch. Like, you can watch Elephant, which is incredible. That's the, uh, the, was it Alan Shepard? Uh, that's not the right name at all, but I know what you're trying to go for. Alan Knowles? Alan King? I don't Alan think King. it's Alan. I'm, like, pretty sure. Alan Clark. Well, okay, yep. you were right about Alan. Alan Clark. But, yes. Um, the- Alan King is the Canadian documentarian. I'm sorry. I got my, <laughs> I got, I got my, I got my, I got my, uh, my Artie Allens mixed. Yes, yeah, so, if you were gonna watch this movie, just watch Elephant instead. It's only, like, 90 minutes long. It's super short. Um, and then I'm going to throw in a recommendation for a, uh, a, a, disre- a disreputable, but tasty piece of vi- violence that invokes the specter of the troubles called, uh, fuck, what's it called? It's called the foreigner. It's directed by Martin Campbell, who did a bunch of James Bond movies and it features, uh, Pierce Brosnan and Jackie Chan going fucking going all like Jackie Chan goes Rambo in it for like a little bit. And he also gets to murk a couple of dudes. So that's fun. That's fun. And also, I think there's the obvious specter of hunger. Um, you sure, can't really talk about films about, um, what do you call it, like, uh, imprisonment of Irish uh, people under the, like under that time period without talking about sure. hunger at this point. And where that film was very raw and very, like, frayed nerves, and you really understand what this conflict is and what it means, there's so many odd choices in in the name of the father, like that Jimi Hendrix song that I... <laughs> oh, yeah. That, yeah, that whole... It's um, it's a riot God. scene that's... Set to Voodoo Child. Which is... <laughs> I like that song. Um, but Good song. But it Great doesn't song. match the tone they're going for. Because the tone should be, I'm sorry, a little more serious when we're talking about, like, basically <laughs> warf- warfare on civilians, on Irish civilians. Like, British warfare on Irish civilians should be a little more serious than, 
a Jimi Hendrix solo. Um, if they were going to do anything, do Machine Gun. Yeah, yeah, Maybe that's yeah. a little too on I mean, the nose, but... Maybe that's a little too on the nose, but I think But the rest of this movie's on the fucking okay. nose, so who cares? This is true. I mean... I mean, what I mean, what can you score like the like the uh, the the British elbow dropping of the North Irish during the Troubles? Apparently, a theme song sung by Bono. Oh God! And uh, and a completely that really happens. By the way, it's not just me being like Irish racist or something. That really happens. (laughs) No, no, no. Yeah, it's a Bono theme song. It sounds like they're 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 heading into the Achtung era, Achtung baby era, or the, the the Zoo TV era, as it were. Because it's all, it's all, it's got electronic beats and shit. It sounds but, even uh, worse than a regular U2 song, and those are already fucking terrible. I mean, I'll go to bat for some of the U records. Okay, but, I know. won't, but. <laughs> someone's someone's got to protect Bono. Yes. Someone's got to be in Bono's corner. He's, there's no one he more oppressed it. than Bono. <laughs> even, even oh, the Edge man. has it better than him. Oh, my lord. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, this movie's not great. I yeah. mean. How much time we got left on, I, on this matchup? I didn't do the timer, I'll be honest. Mm. Mostly because I was trying to um, throw it under the radar so that I would have all the time I wanted to talk about Winter Light when we get there. But, sure. Um, st- I don't Which think- is not in this episode. It is this not. Is it's next, next episode. episode. But I am I'm on the long, the long con. <laughs> so I don't think we have anything else to say about this movie. Except, oh, there is a, there's a black prisoner who um, plays slightly minor like pr- plot role. But only because like Daniel Day Lewis gets like high in his cell. Yeah, he does. He does uh, while LSD listening to Bob Marley. Yes, which it's this. This movie is a thuddingly obvious yes. motion picture. There's no subtlety. This movie's never heard of it. And I, now, I don't think that I will say there was one scene that I liked. There was one image that I liked, which was DDL doing the the pull ups on the bed frame to Thin Lizzy, which is, which is <laughs> really good. Again, not exactly a uh, subtle film. No, Thin Lizzy. What, what's this I hear about Thin Lizzy? Anyway. I heard the boys are back in town. Um, oh. But uh, I, I think that's it. I think I'm glad we're not moving on, except I do want to say it's interesting that um, I totally didn't realize Jim Sheridan also made Get Richard Die Tryin', the 50 Cent film. I did not know that. Which is- That's interesting. Wonderfully abysmal. If you're going to watch any How- Jim Sheridan movie, watch that one, uh, and then follow- How the shit do you get from from seven Oscar nominations to get Richard I Tryon? Uh, sheer, sheer hard work. Well, actually, let's let's do this. It goes- This is Jim Sheridan's director, uh, director list, or direction uh, credits. My Left Foot, The Field, In the Name of the Father, The Boxer, In America, for which he gets a Best Original Screenplay nominee. Uh, get Richard I Tryon- and then into Brothers, Dreamhouse, The Secret Scripture. I've heard of none of these movies except for Get Richard Die Trying. I think I saw Dreamhouse. That was one. It has Daniel Craig and Rachel Weiss in it as well. It's uh, it's bad for what it's worth. Yes. Also, Naomi Watts. Yeah. It was critically panned by critics and was a major flop. I remember I wanted to see Brothers, um, but just just because I happened to like uh, Jakey G, Jake Gyllenhaal. Jakey G, right. Has JKG ever been nominated for an Academy Award? I know this is, has nothing to do with our episode. <laughs> um, let's see. So he received critical acclaim and won a BAFTA Award for Best Actor, Screen Actors Guild. Oh, um, Academy Award for Brokeback Mountain. Brokeback, obviously. One of his worst roles, but we'll, we won't get into that today. I like him a lot, but that and I like every actor in that movie. I think that movie's bad. Uh, Brokeback's in the 250, right? Is it? Probably. Should be. It's, I mean, I feel like it should be. I mean, if any Ang Lee movie, it's probably that one, but that's kind of sad because it's maybe my least favorite Ang Lee movie. Uh, what else would it be? Ice Storm, I guess? Ice Storm's incredible. Uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon could be. Crouching Tiger, yeah. 
Hold on. Um, I actually happen to like his version of Hulk quite a bit. That's been that's that, that's been getting like some reappraisal. So it's a very um, it's too cerebral for its own good. Let's say that Crouching Tiger's not there, and neither is Brokeback. Life of Pi. I think Ang Lee got. I think Ang Lee got shut out. What about Life of Pi? People loved that movie when it came out. Uh, no, the only movie that starts with Life of is Life of Brian, which is at one eighty three. Now that's a movie. But well, we can't really talk about that today. We'll get to that eventually. So uh, that's actually coming up in the relatively recent. Uh, well, it's still a ways away, but it's close in the bracket. Yeah. Um. So I think it's pretty obvious to anyone listening. Once upon a time in America, easily runs away with it. Congratulations! You get to move on. Um. This next one might be a little more difficult, though. We have uh, Paths oh, of Glory versus The Passion of Joan of Arc. Derek, do you want to tell people about these movies? Tale of the Tape, all right. Uh, Pass of Glory, released in 1957, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Uh, this is our second go-around with Mr. Kubrick, if I'm not mistaken. He's got a lot of films in general and also on this list. Turns out that people like the films of Stanley Kubrick. I don't yeah. know if you've noticed. Um, uh, this is based on the uh, the book, Pats of Glory, by Humphrey Cobb, stars Kirk Douglas, Ralph Meeker, Adolphe Manjou. Uh I can't believe I fucked up Adolphe Menjou's name, and I'm French. That's nuts. I wouldn't have and noticed al- unless you said anything for what it's worth. And also, and, and also uh, George McCready. Uh, not a whole lot of other stats on this because this shit was banned upon release. Yeah. So, fu- so fiery was its anti-war sentiment that no one in Europe wanted to fucking touch it. Uh, it only got unbanned in a bunch of places in the 70s, well after its release. Um, but uh, so far as Wikipedia says, it was a modestly successful picture in the States, and it garnered uh, positive acclaim for a writer-director, Stanley Kubrick, co-writer-director, I should say. And now it's got a uh, Criterion edition. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a not to tip my hand, it's a great movie. Uh, also a great movie, uh, The Passion of Joan of Arc. Also uh, a Criterion uh Also film. a Criterion. Released in 1928, directed by Carl Theodore Dreyer, starring Maria Falconetti, and uh, not a whole lot of uh, ancillary stats other than generally considered one of the greatest films of all time. <laughs> yes. Um, I think it's you'd be hard-pressed finding someone who doesn't love The Passion of Joan of Arc. It's a great... It... <sighs> and I, I would love to be the dissenting critic here, um, as I will be on plenty of other episodes, I'm sure, but this is one I can't disagree on. Yeah, Passion... Like, Carl Dreyer was just on some next-level stuff when it comes to just framing, uh, mise-en-scene, close-ups, the use of dollies, the use of zooms, uh, the use of uh, just the way he angles the cameras, and just just using the frame and the face to convey a story. Like, all the clergymen have this kind of, like, uh, like a gargoyle-ish, like, they're, like, one of them is made out to have like little devil horns with his hair. They're all like they're all like big dudes with like big cheeks. They look kind of like almost like grotesques. Um, and I don't think I think I wrote this in my letterbox. I don't think that we've improved upon Maria Falconetti's expression of ecstasy and fear at the same time in the ninety years since. I think we're still trying to recapture that magic so far as like performance goes. Yeah, and I mean, this is one of those movies that. It's so simple in piss simple, dirt simple. When you just look at the like how it's set up, exactly what it consists of, but it's so masterfully done, and it reminds you everything you can do with just lighting. The fact that you just slightly change the lighting, and all of a sudden you can change how you interact with an image. You can change how mm-hmm. someone looks and how they appear and how they feel to the viewer. It's like those uh, if you look at really old like editing tests, just seeing like the blunt simplicity of how an edited image works a lot of the passion of joan of arc was so impressive for me to see how 
how Dreyer had such a masterful control over everything he wanted to do that he could make those tiny things work. Like, as far as I know, there was just one set for the entire movie. You basically never see the whole thing. You only see it in close-ups and some a couple mid-shots, like, once or twice. Everything else is yeah. just, like, devastating, like, a barrage of the most emotion <laughs> that you can get. Yeah, because there's no, you don't, this is one of the things with silent film, especially when it's, like, uh, unreconstituted and there's, like, no score. There's no safety net. It is you and what's on screen, and that's it. Yeah, you- and the use, the constant use of uh, of just close up and these like like not just close ups, like uncomfortable close ups, like really up in there. That's it's 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 disarming. Yeah, it's super effective too. And even takes away the safety of the voice to like express what's going on. Whereas obviously there's intertitles that mm-hmm. keep you up to what's going with the exact events. But obviously, even without those, this is a film, one of those sound films where you don't need those at all. You could, oh, yeah, could totally tell. cut them out and just completely understand what's going on. And because of that lack of any sound and you're just focused on Falconetti's performance, she's able to do so many unique things, so many tiny movements and this truly religious awe that she's able to impart and sense of divine suffering almost mm-hmm. that... It's one might even say it is a kind of martyrdom. Yes. <laughs> uh, Cause apparently this was also very <laughs> unpleasant to make for what it's worth. And it's, I'm trying to think of like even words. It's a proper, it's, it's a wordless film in a very large way in that you don't need language to muddy it up. You can just see it. Yeah, it is. It is. It is a felt film. Um, and I should say, I just found um, a fun little uh, stat. So, Passion of, oh. Passion of Joan of Arc in 2010 was named the most influential film of all time by the Toronto International Film Festival. I wonder how the fuck they figured that out. Yeah, it's not like it just codified an entire cinematic language, changed the entire face of the uh, of the art form. I mean, yes, but <laughs> I want metrics, damn it. Um, I almost want to uh, want to say that probably uh, what's his name? Um, our boy, the the asshole. Lars von Trier, was he involved in deciding that? I think that might be the title of the episode. Um, Because obviously uh, Lars is one of the biggest devotees to Dreyer, and you can easily see that in the way that he depicts suffering. But anyone who's doing close-ups after this has to at least look to this as either I'm going to do that or I'm going to do something totally different because I can't do that. Yeah, that that necessitates – you made a a passing reference to it a bit earlier – incredible control. As an actor, as a performer. And that's a real fucking talent that not everyone has. And it's kind of wild to watch it at work. Nothing, this movie feels modern as shit. It feels like it could have been made yesterday. It's aged wonderful. Not a thing here feels outdated. It's and I pretty much a perfect movie. I would say a film we're going <laughs> to talk about next episode, Winter Light. There's one scene in that that I don't think exists without Passion of Joan of Arc. I'm sure I'd agree if I knew which one you were talking about. It's almost I can't make the reference. Like the one that you mentioned to me in the chat. Oh right, 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 right. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. Okay. I was focused on the, on one aspect of it while you're referencing another. I am, yes. I apologize. It's okay. Um but yeah, you can easily see Falconet's performance in performances as diverse as like, for example, um Inland Empire with uh, Laura Dern, mm-hmm. one of my favorite performances I, ever. Well I say I say mm-hmm out of politeness because I have not seen in that. God Derek. Look, we're going to almost pause the podcast here to say you have to fucking watch Inland Empire. 
There's a lot of movies. Michelle. No, I mean that is the. If I could make you watch any movie, it's that one. That like if if I if I gave you like a free ticket, it's like you make, can make me watch any movie in the world sight unseen that I have not seen yet. And then Empire's your one. I think so. Yeah, either either that or Angel Angel's Egg. Well, Angel's Egg was already kind of on my radar with me being a a, a, a weeaboo in remission. Yes, yes. But ah, fuck, that's another good title. Shit. I guess we'll have to anyway. Sure. Um, um, but also, I was gonna say Isabel Ajani in Possession is obviously another clear descendant of this kind of work. Ah oh, man, a good fucking movie. Sure is. Um. So I feel like we're both at a bit of a loss for words on how to express exactly how well this movie does what it does. It's 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 a it's a pretty staggering piece of work. It's it hasn't aged a day in ninety years. It's like I said, Dreyer was on some next level shit. He, he knew what was up. The question though. Do you think oh, that man. Stanley Kubrick was on some next level shit? Oh, man. This is, I mean, I feel like we're going to do this a lot. And this is like clearly apples and oranges because this is a B-war movie from the 50s. But it's fucking amazing as well in its own right. It's it's playing by a slightly different set of rules, though. Um, so Pats of Glory is uh, is part of the uh, Kubrick juvenilia. Uh, but it's one of the two twin pillar masterpieces of Kubrick juvenilia, the other being The Killing. And uh, the linking uh, connective tissue between those two. Uh, well, there's there's a few actually. There's Kubrick himself, obviously. There's uh, co-writer Jim Thompson, a celebrated uh, crime author, who gives those two movies some nice some nice pulpy edge that uh, that I really, really like. And a supporting performance by legendary weirdo and one of my favorite character actors of all time, Timothy Carey. I'm interested in why exactly this movie really really stuck with you or like really struck something in you because you described it as like incredible as really um wonderful and amazing i thought it was good that was okay i thought it was good but like at the same time there's a lot of things here that in the opposite of passion of joan of arc don't hold up to time there's a lot of filmmaking techniques here that are very of their moment and now currently feel a little silly or outdated like i think it's like you, like, I'm going to use the word generic as in of a genre and not as in, like, like boring or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, I think this kind of movie, the movies of this ilk gives me a kind of generic pleasure. The way they're written, the way they're laid out, the way they're performed. And it's a, it's a movie that gets in, gets out. Again, this is a movie that I wouldn't cut anything out of. Uh, it's really, really zippy. I like the performances, but they're like generic performances. And I don't mean, again, boring. I, um, George McCready plays like an exemplary heavy. Uh, Kirk Douglas is you know, quite good as the lead. Um, I I think this movie is an exemplary movie of this type. I, Whether or not it's better than The Passion of Joan of Arc as a film object, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> um. Because I'm kind of grading on a scale, you know, it's the Ebert thing. Of like, yeah, what's, yeah. When you say this movie's like fucking amazing, what are, you, what are you saying it's amazing against? I mean, like if you go on my letterbox, both these movies have the same score. And see, I don't so. really grade on scales too often. For me, it's it's very much a matter of, well, would I put this movie up against Passion of Joan of Arc and they both come out well? In my opinion, not really. I think this film doesn't, it's... I'm trying to think of a good way to phrase this, but like I can easily compare, for example, or not easily, but I I don't feel any problems comparing, say, Birdemic and uh, Winter Light or Blade Runner or Freddy Got Fingered. To me, those are all kind of, they're all perfect films and I wouldn't change a single one of them. 
uh, and the fact that they're in these huge variances of genre and technique and ability don't affect how they impact me and how they make me feel. And Paths of Glory, what I was wishing for the entire time was more Kubrick in that I feel like there's a version of this movie where you take those moments that are wonderful in it and you let them breathe. I don't feel like this film ever breathes properly. Which so I mean, what I would uh, what I would consider to be a plus, you would consider a minus. Um, I mean, I guess yeah, I would say that because I feel like the pluses of this film that you're seeing remind me of that um, old incorrect Truffaut quote. I mean, not that he didn't say it, but that I think he's wrong in that there's no such thing as an anti-war movie because movies sure. are inherently exciting and like it makes war look cool. I think the zippiness of this film and the generic aspects of it again meaning like genre laden sure undermine the film's message of being a truly anti-war film it's too exciting it's too fun whereas a film we'll get to in a short little bit um come and see again every every episode (laughs) i've talked about it fill out your bingo cards folks um that's the one film i would point to and say hey here's proof that Truffaut was wrong whereas this film i think pretty much bears him out i don't know i mean the actual the actual battle sequences are fine. They're not, I mean, do they adequately convey the terribleness of war by their, by their form and style? Not really. Uh, I, fuck, I, I almost go as far as to say that the centerpiece battle sequence is like, that needs to be there because the rest of the movie doesn't work otherwise. But I think I like all the other shit around it more. Like the politicking and the, the Jim Thompson shit and just like kind of, because after that sequence, it is just a slow road to hell. I mean, I would agree that I think that that's the worst sequence in the film. And I'm not even talking so much about excitement as I am talking about the film very much traffics in this idea of a great man who's trying to do the right thing. And uh, it falls into the same problem I have with certain um, Jimmy Stewart films where he's like uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Sure. Where, yes, he may be this great person. It's wonderful to have that in a movie, but... It feeds into a very individualist reading of how change happens, a very individualist reading of decency and goodness. And by making a real hero out of Kirk Douglas, because he basically does nothing wrong in this movie. He's basically perfect. He's and uh, yeah, basically. And basically. by reinforcing that, you're reinforcing that, oh, if we just have the right people in charge of the war, maybe it could be good. If we just have the right things going on, we can make this worthwhile. It's just there's a couple bad apples. See that's see that's the thing. My interpretation of it is more along the lines of war, like war sours everything, regardless of who you actually throw into it. I think good intentions or not. I think the film attempts to do that. I think don't think it's successful. Mm, I think it lands, but that's why we're two different people. Correct. I I'm gonna agree with that statement. I think that we're two <laughs> different people. Ah, Which boy. I'm being a little down on the movie. I I did like it, um, and I think that that final scene is rightfully. Uh, Held up as one of the best. Oh, it's, it's a wonderful great. final scene. Uh, really chilling. Like I think in a way that I, I wish think, the rest of the movie would be chilling. I think from when the three prisoners, including Timothy Carey, are put in in holding until the end, it's a perfect move. Like no question. No. Yeah. Eh. I I will say that one thing that uh, there's a couple more things that do work. I really like the image of the three of them lined up for firing squad, where one of them's literally in a stretcher, just like tied to there because he can't even stand anymore. Yep. Um, and the comeuppance feels satisfying of, um, the, uh, of the George McCready character. Thank you. Uh, of Brigadier General Paul Meru, 
apparently is yeah. his name. This is one of those weird things where this movie takes place in France, but everyone has like a <laughs> an English accent. Yeah. Accent. Um, I think he gets a good yeah. comeuppance, yeah. but I think yeah. it's also too pat and too easy. Even though obviously the point of it is that hey, this the the lead commander, the actual like major general, doesn't actually give a shit that he did anything wrong. Right. Um, it's still in my version of this movie, he he doesn't lose; he wins. Sure. Mm, God damn it! I have to make a choice. You do. My, I I might should be pretty clear. Um, obviously, but this is going to come down to you. And I, mm. this isn't a situation where I'd use a veto. I feel no. I feel happy with either of these. So. <sighs> God damn it, man! I hate having power. Well, here's just just ask yourself: Is Paths of Glory the most influential film of all time? Uh, I feel like you're trying to railroad me, Michelle. A little bit, yeah. Um, I'm very good at it. Someone should go back in the other episodes and see how successful you've been, because I'm curious to find out. Oh, man. Talking about passion first, I think, swayed it in its favor. How so? Because I, li- I literally called it practically a perfect film. Would you have, Whereas I've got- would you have not called it that if we had done it second? I mean, I probably would end up saying that same thing, too. But I get my kicks in two different ways from these two different movies. I guess the thing I'd ask you is... Um, there's at least one scene we talked about that you didn't love in Paths of Glory. Is there anything that you didn't love in The Passion of Joan of Arc? No, it was pretty pretty bulletproof. Not um, to go all utilitarian, like judging by like pure moral math or something, but well, I mean, I mean, it, <laughs> yeah. Do you want to go where the one? Do you want to go with the one that glorifies war, or do you want to go with <laughs> the one with the martyr? It's like, hmm. No, I think we had to give it The Passion of Joan of Arc. Okay. Yeah, I think. And that's uh, going to cause an even Coop- harder choice next round, because Passion yeah, of Joan Coop- of Arc is going against Once Upon a Time in America. Oh, my. Like, talk, talk about your opposite. Both movies that have masterful use of close-ups. True. <laughs> oh, man. This is... Oh, God. What have we done, Michelle? What are we doing to ourselves? We're watching the greats. I'm, I'm, I'm actually pretty happy with how this is going so far. I've gotten to watch a lot of movies that I wouldn't have otherwise gotten to watch. Yeah, a lot like about half of this block that we're doing for me have been rewatches and it's it's like I've like I've watched Schindler's List spoilers. So That is wild. I mean, listen We'll talk about le- that next leg- episode, I'm sure, but like the list of movies yeah, you haven't seen is one of the wilder things in the world to me. And it's wilder considering the fact that I have a big old piece of paper that says yes. I went to school for movies. I did not see Jurassic Park or Vertigo until after I graduated. So there we go. Where we have it. Oh, man. Yeah. So uh, Passion of Joan of Arc takes it and will face Once Upon a Time in America in the next round when we get to it in like 2020 or whatever. Yes. Um, oh, my God. For next episode, um, anyone who's interested, uh, we have Raging Bull versus Howl's Moving Castle. And we're going to have uh, Schindler's List versus uh, my pick, one of my three one of my three picks, uh, Winter Light by Ingmar Bergman. Oh, we get to see if a ringer dethrones the six. Yeah, which we should uh, – we'll, we'll state it again next episode, but so people know right away. Um, we did officially decide that if we disagree, if like there's an impasse between a film that we chose and a film that was already on the list, the film that was already on the list automatically wins. Automatically So wins. basically, next episode is going to be me spending, what, two hours trying to convince Derek that Winter Light is the fourth greatest film of all time, as my recent list that I made uh, decided. And uh, tune in to see if she succeeds. Uh, but until then, where can people find you on the internet, Derek? Uh, a bunch of places, but I think, uh, well, not even, but you can go on Twitter. I'm there. Uh, Derek underscore G is my handle. And uh, yours is, if I'm not mistaken, Space Jam fan, correct? It is, correct. Uh, how do people get in touch with us? Um, they can either go to our Twitter, which is uh, Reloading Cannon... Reloading... Wrong show. Fuck. 
Oh, oh, <laughs> Jesus. Middlebrow pod. Yes. Oh. Maybe, and, uh, maybe it's 30 below at twitter.com. <laughs> um, yes, it is middlebrowpod at twitter.com. Or you can email us at middlebrowmadness at gmail.com. Yes. Uh, Ross, Ross Burks, if you are listening to this show, please email Michelle and say that this show and the show y'all did together is not the same show. Hey, maybe we'll get him as a guest on a certain episode, which... <laughs> I'm I'm calling you out, Ross Burks. Email us. Yeah, anyone who wants to email us about whatever shit you want. Or if, if you want to give us a recipe for uh, your favorite fruit cake recipes for holidays, <laughs> we'll take it. We'll read it on air. We'll tell people what your great recipes are. <laughs> That's a promise from me to you. If... I, I will second that. If we do get an actual legit recipe in the inbox, by the time we do our next batches of episodes, we will read that shit on the air. Um, so until next time, I've been Michelle Arf. I've been Derek Gane. Have movies, be jolly. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.